Kubrick's Universe, Episode 2, Dan Richter. Real one. Our highly skilled team are focused on bringing you the optimal experience. So many answers we may never know. Too many questions get on with the show. Time for the chorus, only this bus. It's true to you. Open the podcast doors, Hal. It's Kubrick's Universe. The Stanley Kubrick Podcast. series is the most reliable computer ever made. We are all foolproof and incapable of error. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. problem. I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. If it isn't another episode of Kubrick's Universe. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us once again. At the boards is Mr. Smooth, Mr. Smiles, Mr. One Stop Shopping, the Ayatollah of Rock and Rolla, our producer extraordinaire, Mr. Stephen Rigg. I'm your host and humble narrator, Jason Furlong. We have for you today a very special guest, guys. Mr. Dan Richter. Dan Richter of Moonwatcher fame. You might remember him. Played Moonwatcher, 2001, Dawn of Man. Little sequence kind of changed the history of cinema. Yep, we got him. We're very fortunate. Here's a little bit of info on the man. He was born in Darien, Connecticut. Went to Kent School in Kent, Connecticut, and then studied at the American Academy of Traumatic Arts in New York. While he was in New York, he also taught at the American Mime School and the American Academy of Traumatic Arts, as well as the Gene Frankel Theater Workshop. During those years, he toured the U.S. with the American Mime Theater as its lead performer in mime shows in major cities and universities. After about a year studying mime all around the world, he settled in England for about seven years, 
while he was living in London, publishing his poetry review called Residue and teaching mime, he met Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick immediately hired him to choreograph and star in the Dawn of Man sequence in 2001, A Space Odyssey. After 2001, he spent four years working with John Lennon and Yoko Ono, helping to facilitate their film and music projects, such as Lennon's masterpiece, Imagine. Dan returned to the U.S. in 1973 to work as a producer on the Rolling Stones' quadraphonic film, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Rolling Stones. In 1974, Dan returned to the American Mime Theater on a Rockefeller grant, following which he formed the Absolute Reality Theater in New York's Soho District. He's performed numerous mime parts in film and on TV, and has also served as a consultant on many productions. He is presently working as an executive in Hollywood, enjoying the company of his four children, and writing his memoirs, the first volume of which is Moonwatcher's memoir, which documents the year he spent with Stanley working on 2001. Now, Dan may forever be best remembered for starring as Moonwatcher, the man-ape, in 2001, but he's also choreographed. He's had a long career as a mime, actor, director, producer, memoirist, and for two decades, a Hollywood executive. His book, Moonwatcher's Memoir, is about working on 2001, and his more recently published memoir, The Dream Is Over, describes the years that he lived with John Lennon and Yoko Ono between 1969 and 1973. Dan currently lives in Sierra Madre outside of Los Angeles, where he has been leading Sierra Club mountaineering trips since 1991, and he continues to lecture and teach courses on rock climbing and mountaineering. Dan is an American Mountain Guide Association certified single pitch rock climbing instructor. He's the past president of the Southern California Mountaineers Association and a lifetime's worth of accomplishments such as yours truly warrants the lengthy introduction. So thank you so much for joining us, Dan. It's truly an honor to have you with us. Welcome, my man. Well, it's my, it's my pleasure. Uh, great to be here. Thank you, Dan. So I want to ask you uh, a little bit about the, the, your backstory, just to start the ball rolling. Can you tell us about how you came to the American Mime Theater and your work with Paul Curtis. Sure. Uh, yeah, I discovered during my teenage years that I had a, a gift for performing. <clears throat> I had originally was very interested in being a ballet dancer, but I really didn't have the build for it. And uh, while I, I went to study at the uh, American Academy of Dramatic Arts in, um, in New York, and there... The first class I took there was a mime class with Paul Curtis, and I walked up to him after the class and said, I'm going to end up performing with you. And he said, well, you must be crazy. Get out of here. <laughs> but six months later, I, I joined the American Mime Theater as a performer, and I, had a, I just had a natural gift for it and uh, loved doing it. And when I did it, I came to life. Uh, it uh, it uh, opened up a whole world for me. And um, and so I began studying with studying and performing with Paul, and I was there. I was with him for about three or four years. Clearly, you do have a gift for it. It goes without saying. Um, when you when you were working with uh, American Mind Theater with Paul Curtis, 
how did he help develop, as you've mentioned, he helped develop American mime uh, after steeping himself in the French tradition? Yeah, Paul had, uh, after the, after the uh, war, he, he had, he had uh, lied about his age and, go, and joined the <laughs> Navy during the Second World War. And he was very small, so they had him cleaning the inside of the, the funnels on ships. Uh, but when he got out, he had the GI Bill, and he went to the New School for Social Research at, um, uh, in New York. Mm-hmm. And he studied with Lee Strasberg, who was, uh, as you know, one of the fathers of method acting. Absolutely. And he also studied with Erwin Pescata, who had been... Uh, one of the leaders in Germany of the Expressionist Theater, working with people like Bertolt Brecht, etc. So Paul had an early training in both very stylized and formal means, as well as solid method acting. He went and, and um, got a job uh, playing D'Artagnan uh, in a Three Musketeers early television production in France, and he was... Uh, which he was very did very well at that, but while he was there, he was exposed to mime uh, mm-hmm. and the techniques uh, that were being taught by Etienne de Creux, and he got to uh, he got to know Marcel Marceau and Jean-Louis mm-hmm. and uh, got a, a thorough uh, grounding in the classical uh, mime techniques. That's, I mean, really, really interesting, and we could probably dedicate a whole whole other podcast to uh, uh, asking you about your rich history with uh, working there before, uh, of course, you came to work with Stanley. But uh, I, I guess I have to uh, keep the ball rolling. I wanted to uh, ask you uh, about your first meeting with him. And um, <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, well, the thing was is that Stanley, uh, you know, had been shooting 2001 already for over a year. Here and Gary had left, and he still didn't have an opening. You know, he had. They had tried all kinds of things. They had talked to everybody under the sun. They had built sets, torn them down. Uh, you know, made all kinds of costumes. He just could never come up with anything that worked. Mm. And uh, and so he and Arthur were talking one day. Uh, uh, I guess by then it was already. Uh, the end of 66, and uh, said, you know, we've never talked to a mime. And uh, I, at the time, I had, I was in London, I was, I was teaching mime privately, and um, uh, I had also, uh, working with uh, Allen Ginsberg and some other uh, crazy poets, mm. we had put a poetry reading on at the Albert Hall for over 5,000 people, and it was a big success, and I was getting a lot of, they had me on television all the time and whatnot, and and, uh, and uh, wow. Arthur Arthur was had been producing a book with a fellow named Mike Wilson, and, and a buddy of mine who had helped produce the Albert Hall reading knew Mike and was helping him out with a, a project he was trying to develop for Columbia Pictures with Satijit Roy on a thing called The Alien, and, and they were talking one night, and Mike said, you know, Arthur had been talking with Stanley, and they they just, they were trying to find a mime, and my friend Johnny Eastham said, well, I know a mime, his name is Dan Richter. And so I was asked to go out so that Stanley could sort of pick my brains about how a mime would approach the opening of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Hmm. So 
<clears throat> I, you know, I said, okay, I'll go out. I wasn't looking for a job. I was very busy doing what I was doing, and I wasn't particularly interested in getting involved in films. <laughs> and um, so I said, yeah, I, I do. I knew Stanley's work, and I said, well, what, a, what a treat it would be to talk to this guy. <laughs> so I went out there, and, um, you know, there he was. I went into this little little office, you know, books piled floor to ceiling on every subject in, in the world. And this scruffy, uh, interesting, uh, in intelligent uh, guy, Stanley, you know, and he said, oh, you know, he told me what his problem was. And I said, and I was, you know, I was, I must have been a real pain in the ass because I was so cocky, uh, you know, a young guy. And uh, I said, oh, I know what your problem is. A willing suspension of disbelief. Uh, you know, it's a it's it's an acting problem. You've got to get your audience involved, and if you got people running around in monkey suits, uh, you know, and gesticulating and carrying on, they're yeah they're not gonna they're not gonna get involved emotionally. You know, so it's it's an acting problem. And so I told him how to do it, and, and he said, "Well, I don't know who you are. I mean, I just met you. How do I know what you're saying would work?" You know. And so I said, I'll show you, you know, and uh, uh, you read my book. It's, yeah, I mean, I've written about this. I just I told him, well, if you got a if you got a, a, a black leotard, a couple towels and a stage, uh, I'll show you and give you about 20 minutes. And they said, he said, OK, you know, and um, they dug up a black leotard, which I put on and I shoved some towels inside to change the shape of my body and. And I had a character I always used to call Joe, which was this aggressive, but at the same time, paranoid guy. <laughs> and uh, I just told Joe to pretend he was an ape and, and I'd just let him run around, you know. And uh, Stanley loved it and offered me a job. And uh, I told him, well, I wasn't looking for a job. And then he made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And I did it. And I was there for a year and a half. Uh, can you uh, maybe tell us a bit about the iconic uh, bone throwing scene and do you, what your recollections of that day or those days shooting that were, Dan? Well, it was, you know, the thing about the bone throwing scene, it was, it was actually a long process that took, took a couple weeks. Uh, and the, you know, the thing about Stanley is that he did a lot of takes and every, and, what people, I think, people don't quite understand is that he considered he considered his actors an asset. Mm. Uh, and what I what I mean by that is that they he's not an actor; they're the actors. So he's hired these actors. He wants to see what they can do. Right. So he do all the preparation he can and get ready. But he'll get, get there and and he wants to see what you do. As he does a take, he sees what you do. Well, that was interesting. Oh, let's do another take. This time I'd like you to do this. You know, then you do it. And he goes, wow, we discovered something new here. <laughs> okay, let's do the take again. Let's take that thing you did, which I really, I didn't like this other thing you did. Let's drop that, do that. And so he'd build, you'd build it as you went along rather than build it in rehearsal beforehand and then build it. So he wanted to do it all in front of the camera. So he, we did takes over and over again. Well, anyway, uh, I... When we did the, the, we had the scene where I had to, you know, the idea is, is that I've, in the middle of the night, the, you know, the, uh, the monolith has come, 
I get the uh, I get the message. Uh, you know, I've been zapped mentally by them, mm-hmm. the aliens, and and I'm I'm just walking along. You know, I'm sort of on all fours going along, and I come upon a bone, and I pick it up, and the idea to kill comes into my head, and I start smashing things, uh, which leads to uh, I will I will evolve. Into a by by starting to kill, I will evolve into eventually become man three million years later, and then the aliens can can communicate at that point. It's sort of a long term project of theirs to get this this uh, you know this this man ape from stop eating roots and start killing things so he can evolve. Mm. It's a strange idea, but if 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 you know much about the time, there was a fellow named Robert Ardrey who wrote. Uh, Oh, I forget what it was, the angry ape or something like that, and who postulated the idea that we evolved once we started killing things and eating mm-hmm. food. And, mm-hmm. and it, that was a popular, it was a popular, it was a best-selling book he had. That they, you know, Stanley's down below, and he's got the, uh, he, he's, he's got, he pulls out, you can see he puts a more portrait lens on, so I figured I'm going to be gigantic. Uh, you know, and we're shooting in, in 65, 70 millimeters. So, it, you know, you've got to fill your screen. You know, your face mm-hmm. is going to be, you know, 25 feet across. So I figured I'll take it slow and steady, you know, and try to play it, downplay it as much as possible. And, and so I did. And I, and, and I picked up the bone and I sniffed it and didn't know how to quite, I've never held anything before, so I held it funny and, or whatnot, and and then I just sort of did a very light tap with it against the other bones on the ground, and one of the bones flew in the air a little bit because of the way I hit it, and I said, oh, I'm sorry about that, Stanley, because we were talking to each other because I could talk through the mask. Mm-hmm. We didn't have any sound. On. He said, no, no, I love it. Keep going, keep going. So I continued, and we did the take, and he said, oh, that was great. Let's do it again, and we started developing that take you know, those takes around that and then finally into breaking the skull and whatnot. So that was the first day and then we went off and and did the other shots with the other guys. But Stanley and I started talking at that point. He was saying, I, you know, he really wanted to do something with this. You know, he he felt he had the beginning of, of something special there. So we'd go back again and sh- we'd shoot it again. And this time I'm throwing the bones in the air, you know, after everything was crushed, reaching down, throwing everything up. So we did some takes and then he, he still wanted to take it further. So we had finished shooting uh, on the, all the guys and been able to let everybody go. And so Stanley built a, a rostrum out, out, outside because he wanted to be able to get underneath me so he could look up and see clouds behind me, see the sky, because everything we had shot was indoors with the front projection system. And so, uh, you know, we started shooting those shots outdoors with the head, and then he wanted to be, he wanted it to be in slow motion, and the every time we, we ran the camera because of those big, that big 65, you call it 70 millimeter, but the actual film is 65 mil or five millimeter goes into the track. And the, uh, right. he kept tearing, the teeth would just tear the film, you know, uh, because it was just too big to speed up that much. You know, we were, we stopped and we were doing research on high speed cameras and well, we couldn't get the quality, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we spent a couple of weeks on that, I think, at least a week or two. 
<clears throat> and and finally, they sent out a, a I guess a motor was found in Hollywood that uh, was able to get, slow it down a bit. And then I came up with the idea. I said, well, why don't I? I'm a mime, you know. Why don't I just do slow motion, you know? Uh, and mm. so uh, I did the slow motion, and and uh, Stanley, you know, sped up the camera so he could get the the film slow motion. And the two together got it down to where he wanted it. Finally got the speed. We finally were able to get the speed right. So the, I guess the point is, is that little, that moment, and everybody says it's such a, you know, a great moment in film history and everything, was first was discovered by Stanley's way of shooting with actors, where he's always looking for something to happen, mm -hmm. you know. And then... The abilities that Stanley always had to recognize things, to see something. He sees, okay, I can do something with that. That, and then, once he did that, did that, then the ability to wor just work so carefully and so diligently, and and with you know, endlessly work on something to perfect it, to polish it, to find every little. So he, you know, it took weeks from that first little take we did. Till we finally got to the end. And by the way, when we, when he and Arthur were walking back from one of the day's shoots on the roster, at least this is how Arthur tells it, he picked up a stick and was just playing with it, you know, sort of trying to get a feel of what I was doing with the bones, I guess, and it, and and sort of tossed it in the air and suddenly realized that he had discovered. I think he's going to throw that bone in the air, and he had, of course. That gave him the the chance to make the cut to the three million year cut. There you have Stanley Kubrick. Uh, this, the script said Moon Watchers in a stream bed's going to pick up a bone and whack some you know some other bones, and uh, and then go off and hit one of the other guys and you know and he took that little moment and built it into into what it be, finally became, which is arguably one of the great moments in film history. Tell us about working with Stuart Freeborn and your input, if any, in developing the masks. Yeah, uh, well, you know, right at the very beginning, you know, once Stanley talked me into doing this, you know, I had a, I, I you know, I, I turned up, I had this office, maybe this office and uh, assistants and all these people standing around waiting waiting for me to tell him what to do and that kind of stuff and my name on the door. And I'd never done any Hollywood stuff before. So I was very impressed. And um, <clears throat> Stanley says, okay, you got to go over and meet Stuart. Uh, and Stuart's uh, working on the costume. And so I went over and looked at the costume and met Stuart. And Stuart was the, but just absolutely the sweetest, most wonderful man you'd ever meet. Mm. And... Uh, you know, and he showed me this costume, and I and my and I said, I can't, I, you know, I can't do anything with that, you know, because uh, I'm going to look like the Michelin Man in that, you know, like, <laughs> you know, and the, everything that I'm doing is about acting values, you know. I've got to, I've got to grab the audience by the balls immediately, right. you right. know, and so I have to be able to express myself, you know, mm -hmm. and I've got to have hands. I have my, you have. 
you got to, I, I have to, you have to see my body, you know, the, the mm-hmm. my eyes, and, you know, and I'm not, I don't have words, you know, I've only got my body to work with and you just can't cover it with these, you know, skin and fur and all this junk, you know. Right. And uh, <clears throat> so we had some meetings and, and Stanley said, well, that sounds a good idea, Stuart. I'm sure you can fix it, you know. And Stuart's going like, oh, my God, who is this crazy guy? And uh, so, but Stuart and I began to work, and, and we started from scratch, you know. And I said, okay, you know, imagine I've got <clears throat> a leotard on, and you can see every every muscle in my body, you know, and... Uh, and now I want you to you, you build it up where you've got to build it up, but you've got to let me have a, as much of it. You got to let me have as much of it as possible so I can sign to work with. And not only that, we haven't figured. I haven't figured out the movement yet, and that's going to be complicated. And so I began working with Stuart, and and at the same time I was working with Stanley. And and Stanley, I, Stanley said, "Well, what do you need? You know, and and." And I said I have to I have to study, uh, you know, uh, primates, and I have to do some research and things. And he loved that anything mm. that that smacked of more work and more detail yes. and getting it. Oh, guy, just yes. loved it, you know. Yeah. yeah. And he said, you know, because originally he said, okay, we're going to shoot this in ten weeks down in Almeria in Spain. And I said, no, we will never be able to do that, Stanley. <laughs> this is going to take. This is probably going to take like six months or a year. You know, and you and you you can't be outside in the dirt and things like you know. With it's got to be a controlled environment, you know, because mm-hmm. it's, it's a, we're creating an illusion here, you know. And <clears throat> so anyway, he you know he gave me this bolio, uh, bolio uh, little film camera, a little eight millimeter camera to work with, and and uh, some Nikon's to shoot with and whatnot. And, and Keith Keith Hampshire, over uh, who's doing stills and whatnot, you know, was assigned to help me out and and I just started you know I went to uh, conferences of anthropologists and museums and the stacks in the British Museum and, and you know I just went everywhere studying you know and I I I would I would film chimpanzees and whatnot and and meanwhile and so I would begin researching and then I'd go to Stuart and say well look I, the hands have to at least do this you know can we do how you know like that? How do we and and we began this process. So Stuart and I worked every day together for more than six months developing the costume. Wow! And it was very. It, we ended up basically the costume was skin tight like a leotard with literally their big wigs and and, and they literally sewed hairs into the, into them. You know those hairs were all sewn in. Wow. And uh, it took a long, long time, and um, and then we, I, I, I basically I wanted to extend the line from the crown of the head to the coccyx, make that as long as possible because think about bipedal creatures like humans, uh, unlike our ancestors, is that we have these great big legs and 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 thick hips, mm-hmm. which. Um, uh, apes and early man did not, mm-hmm. and uh, so they, we spent a lot, lot of time trying to hide them, which meant that you had to keep the legs 
the knees bent and the legs turned out, which makes the hips look as small as possible. Right. And right. then no padding around the waist, whatnot, and 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 extend the top of the head with the mask and a little bit of the extent at the coccyx area and put padding into the small of the back and then build up the shoulders. And then the head was the head was rocked back and dropped back in its socket um, so that it, it's the, the actual, because our heads are, human heads are, are far too big compared to these guys three million years ago. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, had like, you know, 350, 500 cc, you know, brains compared right. to like 1200 yes. or whatnot, you know. So it, there were, a, there were a number of illusions or areas, ways we had to go. And, and we just did this bit by bit trial and error. And um, finally, I, uh, I, I need, but I needed a model I could teach people. And I ended up, uh, you know, using Jane Goodall's, Hugo van Lauwek, who married Jane Goodall, was the, was the photographer. And he did a lot of, uh, he met Jane because National Geographic sent him out to Gombe to mm -hmm. sh shoot the chimps. And there was a lot of footage. We got the National Geographic, actually, I, I believe they gave us some some of his outtakes and whatnot. We had a lot of footage. Wow! And uh, and I used I used the, the the James Chimps as the the basic dynamic of how to build a group or a, a troop of because I had a, I had 20, 25 people I had to have to, right, you know right. creatures, you know, and they all had to be they all had to have their own character. They had to have, you know, they, 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 most of them were males. There were some females, which would be smaller. I used jockeys for those. But they all had to have their own characters, their own relationship within the group. <clears throat> they all had to be smaller than me. Mm -hmm. And uh, they all had to be able to do the movement. And which may, basically it was from the waist down, it was a gibbon walking in slow motion. And from the waist up, it was a chimpanzee with an overlay of, of, uh, of a gorilla. Wow. Uh, at the same time, keeping the head sucked back down and and the you know uh, and, and the chin down to push the back of the head up, and the small of the back rounded out, uh, and at the same time try to act, you know. Right, right. So I basically got just a long stick and I just beat them a lot, you know. <laughs> I just I said you know I I decided I'm going to be like a, a marine sergeant in in boot camp and i'm gonna break these guys you know and uh i uh and they were uh, stanley and i had been i had i went through tens of thousands of people trying to find them we looked at every track and field team in england you know high school mm -hmm. team, well it wouldn't be called high school there but whatever you call it there mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh because i was looking for people smaller than me who were skinny who could move right <clears throat> and and stanley Came came into the studio one morning, and you know, as usual, he he pulled me aside and say, "Hey, Dan, you got a cigarette?" Because Katerina wouldn't let him smoke, <laughs> and uh, you know, I give him a cigarette, and we we'd always we'd always walk around the back of the building so nobody could see us, you know. <laughs> and he said, "Listen, I was watching. He liked to watch TV, you know, and uh, I was watching TV last night. It was this group called the Young Generation." who were like a variety show and they were popular and they were a bunch of young dancers that were supposed to be kids. So they had, they had developed this group out of a bunch of, of skinny 
small dancers. And, you know, they could move pretty well. And they were professional dancers. And, and he said, I saw that these guys take a look. I said, yeah, you know, I said, yeah, I've seen them. But, you know, and so I, I called these guys in and I ended up casting most of my people I cast from that group. But the problem was they were all dancers. So, you know, they did everything rhythmically. Mm. And, they, you know, and I had to beat it out of them, you know, and... Um, <laughs> And we had the, uh, this big back lot where, back where I had a, a, the training studio. I it was right off the big, gigantic back lot with fields and whatnot. And it was it was about a mile around the edge of it. See, so if they if they did anything wrong, they'd have to do a lap. See, I'd send them out to run around this thing, and they they they, they, they I think they hated me at first, and then when they started getting it and realizing how good it, we were getting at it all. Uh, they we became very close, and I'm still very close with a number of them. You know, uh, uh, we became sort of buddies. Stanley had asked you to do with regards to training the troop of mimes when you uh, brought them on board. Yeah, well, the thing was is that, you know, it was, I really didn't answer your question before about the costume. Is I ended up working with Stuart every day. Mm. Basically, we became very, very close. And, uh, uh, you know, um, you know, there was uh, Colin, uh, what was Colin's last name? Oh, God, I can't. Colin Arthur was helping out, and a fellow named Charlie Parker, who Stewart brought on because Charlie was great at teeth, you know, because we had to build up all the teeth for the masks. The masks, yeah, mm-hmm. the, the masks were the, the most complex part of the costume, in that the 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 uh, you could the dentition was built so that just by moving your opening and shutting your mouth, its mouth would open and shut. Uh, the the tongue. We, we, I, I see. I, 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 here again, I drove Stuart crazy because I wanted the mask to be as expressive as possible. Mm. And Stanley would say, "Yeah, yeah, they got you know." He'd agree with me. Oh, we got to be more expressive, Stuart. You know, and poor Stuart had to somehow figure out how to do this stuff. The the actual eyes were our, of course, our own eyes, and we didn't look out through a little hole. There was a big hole there, and. And they were basically appliance material, so that we, if you, if we took the mask off, we looked like raccoons with these great big black eyes, you know, because mm-hmm. our, that, that part of the face would be made up, so that when the mask went over, you would see the complete eye and the eyelids and all of that, so that it could be as expressive as possible. The tongues, you could stick your tongue inside the tongue to wow. make that move, and then. The, the mass also, Stuart was, you know, as you know, one of the great uh, makeup geniuses of the 20th century, you know, oh, creating yes. Yoda and, Absolutely. you know, you know uh, and uh, Jabba Hutt. Yep. And, all and all, and, you know, Alec Guinness in his, those early years where he did all that heavy makeup stuff would never let anybody do his makeup except Stuart, you know. Mm. And, uh, and so <clears throat> he realized that he put in these little uh, threads 
uh, in, attached to the lips. So as the mouth opened, first the lips, before the mouth actually opened, which you began the process, the lips would roll back just slightly, which gave it, made them real, you know, when it happened. It, mm. it, it just, it just popped, it made it real. He also, in, in my mask, and I had more than one mask. Yeah, I had a number of masks, and I and I, I ended up actually, I think, playing different characters. I don't remember to what extent, but mm. for close-ups and things. Wow. But my mask had a toggle system inside that I could press with my tongue against these toggles to make the lips curl back uh, on either side. You know, so that I had a number of variety of options. Right. So that it it didn't look it 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 made it look real. If you if all you need to do is give yourself a few options other than the obvious ones, mm. and it's enough to make it start to have make it come to life. You know, uh, assuming that you're actually performing with it as well. Which uh, clearly you were. So what it, as a as your. Uh, mind skills and everything, all the talents you'd accrued up to that point, was there anything rather unique or new, challenging for you with regard to manipulating uh, all of that intricate articulation for the brow, the cheeks, the lips? Anything yeah, I, you'd never I, done before? I had done mask work before. Um, and uh, uh, the, the you see, I have to get, get my training from Paul was that we always we always create all our movement in American Mind comes from the acting process, and comes it comes from the character you've mm -hmm. created as an actor, mm -hmm. you know, basically using the method, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, and so my training was to take the slightest impulse from the character and from the acting process, and extend it into very large movement, mm -hmm. and so. <clears throat> it was perfect for what we were doing there. I mean, it was just, you know, we were so, it was, Stanley was, I was lucky and blessed to have been there at the right time. Mm -hmm. And Stanley was lucky to have discovered a guy who was trained how to do this, right. you know. And, um, and, and, and so I was, I think I was ready for that. The, the other thing that, that, we have to do, which I had been trained in, is what we call isolation. That's doing things that aren't natural at the same time as you're doing something. Two different movements that don't don't seem to go together. A synergy. And, can you, of sorts, can you expound on that? That's yeah, interesting. Okay. Yeah, well, like, I've got to play a character. My character, Joe, is out there, and he's got to... Some this 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 guy with the beard over there wants me to pick up bones and and you know <laughs> Jesus oh God the, the, that what the hell is he going to ask me to do next and you know but at the same time Dan is saying yeah but I'm going to play this really slowly Joe slow down mm -hmm. I want it's almost as if you're in slow motion now I've got to push the toggles here on the, I'm going to push the toggle very gently just very gently and cock my head slightly so I'm thinking all this stuff. At the same time, I'm I'm allowing Joe to live inside of me, you mm. know, with all him. And Joe is Joe is a pain in the ass, you know, <laughs> and and he's the most prejudiced, lowbrow, you know, uh, 
you know, but you know, he's Joe, you know, yeah, and he's my rich. character, you know, and I got to let him do it, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm so I'm doing basically I'm juggling a number of balls at the same time, you know, and but I'm trained to do that, you know. In a mime, your the lower half of your body might be a table, and the right. other half the other half may be somebody sitting at the table, you know. Right, or, right. You see, or. Your hand, you've caught the butterfly, and your fingers are the wings of the butterfly, but you're the character who's, who's astonished at the beauty of it and the fact mm -hmm. that he's holding it in his hand, you know. So that's a thing that a mime is trained to do. Mime is unnatural, uh, you know, from a, a performing point of view. What you're doing is not natural. I get it. It's, it's unnatural, and we're trained to do that. Yeah. Uh, so that, uh, uh, like, uh, like Marceau, you know, he may, you know, be doing that Jodorowsky thing that, that Jodorowsky wrote from, you know, the mm -hmm. mask maker. Mm -hmm. And he mm -hmm. puts the mask on, it's a smiling mask, and he puts it off. And then he puts the other mask on, and it's a frowning mask. And then he, right. he's got the smiling mask on, and it's stuck, and he can't get it off. Right, and, right. and his body is frustrated and, and then pulling at the mask, but the right. mask goes on smiling, you know. And... That's those are what we call isolations, you see, and they're 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 normal people can't do them. We have to we train you very hard to learn how to do this. It's the same as like patting the top of your head while you're rubbing your stomach mm -hmm. with a circular motion. It's, mm -hmm. it's not natural, right? And, right. And and so and further, my problem is. I've got these 20 energetic young professional dancers who mm -hmm. do everything rhythmically, you know, everything coordinated together. And oh, I that's want interesting. them. Right. So the, the, one of the things they were not allowed to do was dance, you know, one, two, three, one, you know, like yeah, every yeah. time they do it, they'd, they'd have to go out and do another lap around the back lot, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and uh, so I had, to, I had to break them before I could train them. Stanley was very wise, it sounds, to put you uh, in charge of this, like, huge responsibility. Is, uh, you, you, you must have been the perfect taskmaster, for lack of a better word, uh, for, that, for that job. I mean, that sounds like yeah. a Herculean effort. Well, he said, you know, I remember he said to me, okay, so, Dan, what are you going to do with these guys? I said, okay, Stanley, my job is this. Hmm. I am going to give you a, a troop of man-apes each of one who has a different character has a place within the pecking order of the group mm -hmm. and, and, and is so integrated and works so well together, you could pick them up and drop, and drop them in a parking lot of a supermarket and they would be carrying on and doing things whether you told them to or not, you know. And, you know, and, and right. we did things like I, I during the, before I did the casting, I was working with a, a two, guy, two guys uh, uh, were helping me out. One guy who had studied with Paul Curtis in New York, Ray Steiner. And uh, we basically looked at the, the good old footage and other footage and, and, and made lists of activities. Because, you know, in, in, in the method, we always say uh, every an actor always, you always have to have a character to start with, bingo. And mm -hmm. two, you always, ha every character always in a scene always has an objective. And the, the character has activities which help them achieve the objective. And then they have how they respond 
to doing the activities, trying to achieve the objectives, and that we call those the adjustments or the affect, the yes, the yes. feelings. You see, mm -hmm. and so that's the it's a it's it's, it's a technical strike. You can read it, you know, Stanislavski and actor mm -hmm. prepares or building a character. It's all there. It's basic, and actors have been doing it, you know, since then, uh, uh, and it's 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 just it's ABCs of acting. So, <clears throat> so we had to. Uh, we had to be able to do that all the time. So every, so I got every guy to have a character. Had we had a laundry list of activities written out that you could do, like grooming each other, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, take, trying to steal a steal a, a seat from somebody else. You know, mm -hmm. they get up to go somewhere else. So I'm going to sit there now. Right. You know. You know. <laughs> and 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 we got all. You know. So we built all this. So we had a whole backstory all the time, before we ever came even to the script. You see, I wanted to have five times as much material as we would need, you know, so these guys would always look, I never wanted the audience to stop and come out of it right. and think, oh, these people are wearing costumes. Mm -hmm. And the way you do that is if you saw, you look from the first shots, you see them, they're groveling around for things and they're, wow, you know, relating to each other and one pushes the other away and, you mm -hmm. know, it, it, it's going from the first moment. And, and if you watch, it's going all the time. They're always, you know, they always, they, they know their relationship to each other. They, are, they yes. all have characters and they're all doing activities all the time that define who they are and what they are, what they're doing and what they're doing. And, and so I get, that's my job. That was my job. And I gave Stanley that to work with. And, I mean, so, it's just absolutely amazing. I don't know, in, you know, of one person. Uh, as a cinephile and the countless conversations I've had with friends and colleagues, not one person who's ever felt that for a nanosecond they are removed from the reality uh, that you and Stanley and everyone, Stuart, everybody created during that opening sequence. Yeah. I mean, it still boggles the mind at, at, at its, its sheer realism, but beyond mm -hmm. that, yeah, everything that you guys put it into was. it. Well, it's look, it's it's all about Stanley, okay? Because you have to understand something. Any other director would have simply told you what to do. Mm -hmm. He said, this is what I want, this is what I want you to do. Malcolm McDowell uh, once said to me, oh, God, I hated Stanley because he, you know, he liked him as a person, but I hated the fact that he, mm -hmm. he never told me what to do as an mm -hmm. actor. I'd say to him, Stanley, what's my motivation? What am I supposed to be doing? And Stanley would say to him, well, I don't know. You're the actor. You've you been know? hired. Yeah, I hired yeah, you. Yeah, you know. I mean, there's a great story about Jack Nicholson in The Shining, you know. And and uh, Nicholson is, you know, is doing it over and over. And, and he's just not getting it, you know. And Stanley mm -hmm. says, gets angry at him and says, God damn it, man. I'm paying you millions of dollars. You're right. the goddamn actor. Right. Give me, give me my money's worth, you know. Yeah. And, and, and Stanley saw you. OK, if you're the actor, do the acting. If you're mm -hmm. the designer, do the designing. Now, he's going to tell you exactly what he wants, you know, and he's going to, you know, but at the same time, he never wants to shut the door on what new things he can discover and that you can bring to the table. Yeah. And that's that's why all the older guys who started out the pictures ended up not being around. Mm -hmm. And all these new young guys like me and Doug Trumbull, 
mm-hmm. you know, ended up doing more and more and more because we were ready to do that. These older guys wanted to be told what to do. Right. And 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 Stanley, Stanley, and you can see how he's thinking. He's, and again, he sees you as an asset. He knows what he can do. He can do it without you. He can tell you what to do and whatnot and get a get a pretty good picture. Mm-hmm. But he knows that if he's picked good some good people and just gives them some freedom, that he may discover those magic things. Yes. That, that yes. you know that he can then incorporate with all the research he's done. Right. You know, Stanley would do. There's a. They built a set before I came on. You know, and it mm-hmm. costs like something. Like, I, I all these numbers, forty thousand pounds, like this big complete set for the waterhole mm-hmm. and everything like that. And they, you know, they they said, okay, Stanley, come on over to the stage and see it. And they had been working on it for weeks and spent all this money, and it was incredibly dead, been designed in all kinds of detail. And he came in, and he walked in. The, they opened the door of the set. He walked in, he took a look, and he said, no, I don't like it, and walked out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they're going like, oh, my God, we've just, right. you know, <laughs> we spent months and all this money and everything. And he didn't even, he didn't, he didn't say, didn't well, finish. you know, I'll take a yeah. look. He just with one look, he said, no, that's not it. I, you know, he knew, man, no, you know. And, and I think, you know, one thing about many great artists is they, they know how to say no. They know yeah. and say, no, it's not right. It's yeah. not there. Instead of settling for it and try, you know, Paul Curtis, you know, said a lot of uh, very intelligent things to me in, in our training. And one of the most important things he used to say was, "You can't shine shit." Right. And uh, and uh, it's a very it's a, I know I hate to use technical terms. No, I get it. But, I get it. <laughs> but you know you'll see this over and over again in mediocre products. Absolutely. You know you somebody says, "Well, let's let's just try to fix it and make it better." It's yeah. no good to start with. Throw right. it out. You right. know, go back to the drawing board. But Stanley had the freedom to do that. I mean. We were shooting, I don't know, nine stages at once, you know, uh, not just because not just my stuff, but, the, you know, they were we were building the whole picture, you know, in the literally in the camera. That was a handmade film. It was before yeah. computers, yep. you know, oh, yeah. and uh, yeah. and I was working on other things. He he didn't want to waste me just on, you know, things. So I was working in the art department, too, you know, helping mm-hmm. design things and. And uh, we, he and I were trying to build an alien all the time. We never right. got one. Right. We, we right. did a lot of research. And so, I mean, he just, we were just, just doing stuff all the time. And it, it, this, this man was amazing that way. I mean, absolutely no argument there, and it, I find it fascinating that that you bring up something that is yet another area of interest for me and so many Stanley enthusiasts, which is what you described about him, on the one hand, having a very, very intuitively specific vision in mind, and at the same time, being malleable and allowing for improvisation and stuff, because I think for a long time, uh, it was lost on a lot of people that, uh, you know, he was not this didactic, uh, you know, that wasn't his approach. Um, and based on everything that I and Stephen, all of us, you know, continue to read about him and have been for years, it's just, 
uh, proof positive that, you know, he, I mean, well, you know this better than anybody. I mean, we're talking about a guy who is operating on just so many levels of, uh, you know, critical thinking and intuition and the synergy of that. Um, so I want to ask you, um, you know, when 2001 was shot and uh, you'd mentioned uh, Christiana and, of course, Vivian uh, plays Squirt in uh, the film, yeah. the daughter of Haywood Floyd. Um, did you meet uh, all Stanley's daughters? Uh, yeah, they, uh, they bring them around. You know, they like the, they want they <laughs> they wanted to see the monkeys, you know, of course, uh, yeah. uh, you know, so they were on the set a, a couple of times and I, I saw them over at the house sometimes. uh my wife Jill and I would go over for dinner, and uh, uh, the they 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 had they had already settled at uh, out at a place called Abbott's Mead, uh, right there mm -hmm. in Borum Wood. Mm -hmm. And uh, the uh, Stanley was a family man. Uh, a lot of people don't know that oh, about yeah. him. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he was very very close to his family, uh, and he. Uh, um, they were just very sweet together, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he, he you know, he, he's, he's not this, he wasn't this recluse. He just didn't have time for, you know, he, his time was very valuable, and, and, and his time with his family to him was very valuable. Yeah, we get um, that completely. Yeah. You um, know, and he had yeah. dogs, you know. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the dogs, like when, when he died, I, I went out to, uh, I went out of, Few weeks after he died, or a month or so after he died, Tony Fruin invited me out, uh, mm. and I went out and, and um, saw Vivian. And uh, Christiana was sick that day, but I didn't see her. But we walked around the house, and I remember in the kitchen all these sad dogs. Mm -hmm. Stanley was gone, you know, and dogs that were like orphans that he had mm. saved and taken care of. And the, you, you had this feeling of warmth. You know, the, all the time between him and his the family members. You know. Yeah. Well, I just have to add that you know, for the record, I, I can speak on behalf of Stephen, and uh, you know, everyone that's involved with the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society, first and foremost, and by extension, the uh, podcast Kubrick's Universe. The, everything you just described is so paramount to us. Uh, the uh, preservation of not just uh, an examination of his work, his art, his legacy, but who he is as a man, um, a husband, a father, uh, a, just a wonderful human being, and, you know, so devoted to his family. Again, another area of interest that I personally love to read about, have been doing so for years. I, I always uh, grew up, you know, rejecting this... Uh, notion that he was some kind of misanthrope and I think even as a kid I understood that you know this guy just didn't feel it uh, uh, necessary to you know provide interviews of, you know he didn't want to explain his films obviously and I think I read where he said uh, I, I would just look silly on a chat show you know being a part of a, like a panel say on like you know Johnny Carson or something yeah with that you know that Bronx accent and he wasn't he wasn't the you know the uh, skinny attractive Hollywood type you know mm -hmm. and uh, uh, also he was you know his 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 he has his interests were so Catholic I mean <laughs> you know, a typical day, as I said, you know, he'd be, you know, he'd always, he tried to waylay me to bum cigarettes off me, and, <laughs> and, and we would talk, you know, we would talk, be talk, you know, we'd be made, we might be talking about 
we, you know, I say, oh, Dan, what about how the hand's going? Well, they're great, Stanley. I got Stewart to extend the fingers just slightly, but he took a lot of the padding off the back of the hand, so it's much more expressive now. Great. When can you show me? I'll have it ready in about, Stewart says in about two days, and we'll show it. Great. Hey, listen, you know, we were talking about, uh, you know, the Battle of Austerlitz. Now, you know, how did, what, yeah. how do you, you know, Napoleon, you know, because he really, how did he know that Nye could show up at that time in the morning, you know, on that forced march up from, you know, and we talk about that for a little bit. And then, then he said, well, you know, you know, your friend William Burroughs, you know, and that, the, that ticket that exploded and those other books, you know, what is the cut up technique, you know? So we'd be talking about all these different things all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know. you're talking you're talking about a guy with you know one of the most impressively uh, compartmentalized uh, brains that I've ever encountered. It's another reason why I know I'm you know I've, I've been drawn to him my whole life beyond just again his films. Like I uh, tend to be drawn to those people when and where I can find them uh, in my life, no. and uh, I've always tried to be. Uh, hopefully uh, a bit of a high functioning person in my best capacity, but Stanley was just on another level. And, uh, you're just, well, uh, he knew more yeah. than the experts, you know, yeah. oh, I know. he, he would, he would get manuals, you know, Amazing. and, uh, you Absolutely. know, and Amazing. just, just go into so much detail and, and try to understand. He wanted to understand things, mm -hmm. you know, not just get an overview of something, but he wanted to really understand them. I heard a story that he was um, one of their their cats was sick and had been at the vet, and uh, for the few days the cat was at the vets, Stanley just completely immersed himself in all you know the, the you know uh, veterinary periodicals and books and you know then he contacted the vet and of course you know for those listeners who don't know this is all pre Google this is the days of card catalogs and you know researching the old fashioned way. He called up the vet and said, well, you know, uh, based on what I've been reading, uh, it, could it be this that's uh, causing her affliction? And, uh, you know, is this respiratory ailment a byproduct of the medication that you gave her? Because my research, you know, tells me that blah, blah, blah. And it's just, you know, absolutely beyond impressive that, you know. Oh, yeah, no. You would do we that for his cat, for his pets, you know. Sure. We did passing talk about something. And and two days later, you know, I I'd walk in the morning and said, "Oh, hey Dan, listen, I found those that book mm -hmm. that we were talking about. I bought a copy for me and a copy for you, you know." And, it's just uh, incredible. Yeah, it it is. Its office was just piled with books and and mm -hmm. periodicals and manuals and just information, just yeah. piles and piles of information. And uh, he, you know, he didn't. He, he was much more interested in the source material rather than some expert's opinion about the mm -hmm. source material. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it's one thing to know that you know he could apparently hold his own more than hold his own in conversations with noted astrophysicists because he enjoyed reading about that subject. But then you know, couple that with, uh, hey, my cat's sick. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's and, and it's and it's really upsetting my my little girls and, and Christiana. It's just, you know, you have that entire uh, pool of, of, of mental acuity operating on kind of like two different spectrums of, of, of thought. Again, the one is about, you know, space technology, you know, exploration. And the other is, 
hey, my cat's sick, and uh, what can I do about this? Well, he would put equal value on, and he just, it was yeah, just yeah. more information, it's a better way to understand this mystery that we're living, you know. Precisely. Uh, uh, and, you know, and, and he really had a disdain for anything that was not relevant to where he was, to the whatever he was doing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a great story, you know, Christiana complained that he was, uh, wasn't, his clothing wasn't, you know, he was yeah, getting yeah. too scruffy. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know if you heard this story or not, but he, 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 they decided to take him down to Herod's, you see, so he could buy his suit, <laughs> you know. And so he walked into the men's suiting suit place or department or whatever and just mm-hmm. start walking along the road saw sort of a, the most neutral blue suit you've right. ever seen grabbed it uh, grabbed a hold of it and held it up to him and said give me six of these and turned around and walked right. out the door yeah you know? yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, it, i did read a quote of hers saying mm-hmm. that uh, Stan, stanley would have been quite happy with seven tape recorders and one pair of pants. And I just, exactly. Yeah, I love that about him. And he loved gear. I mean, stuff, cameras, mm-hmm. things like that. And he didn't love him. He, he knew everything about it. We literally invented technology. Oh, I, I know it. You know, it's how much, talk about vision. Here's a guy he has a vision, and you say, and and you know, and all the the so-called experts say you can't do that, Gov. You know, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and and you know th- that guy would well, you wouldn't see him around anymore. And then some new young guy would come in and say, Yeah, well, we're doing. We've got found some people over in Germany who've got this technology, and you know, and it's the front projection system we used. I mean, you know, uh, Roger Karras. Uh, had uh, you know Stanley had Roger going around just researching stuff for him endlessly, mm-hmm. and Roger had found at 3M this material that was little mirrors sprayed onto a surface, you know, that would high resolution screen, mm-hmm. and it had been used as in I think in some average cigarette ad or something like that, with a little bit of it, you know, a little small patch. And I think it was also for reflectors. The yeah, idea was. Yeah, I believe it's it, called it's called Scotchlight. I believe it was developed yeah. by 3M Corporation. 3M, yes. Yeah, exactly. Whom my, my dad actually used to work for for many years. But go on. <laughs> yeah. So well, anyway, so Stanley says, "Well, can we make this an 80-foot screen?" <laughs> you know? Yeah. And 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 so we had to. It, 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 but we could, and it led to, uh, you know, of course, you needed now you needed something big enough to project that right. that will be uh, uh, beyond the circle, well, you know, the circle of confusion, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, and cinematography. It's the circle of confusion is the size of the area on the screen in which you can no longer determine whether something's black or white. Right. You know. Right. Right. And and so if you've got you're shooting in in, in, in you're producing a seventy millimeter uh, print that you know you have to be able to if the background is is not high enough resolution uh, f- compared to the foreground you'll know it's a background you know and so. We shot eight by ten using an eight by ten Cinar camera. Mm-hmm. Shot these gigantic uh, slides, which then had to be projected. The light source turned out to be an arc lamp. I mean, can think of the, the heat that was generated. Special condensers had to be built in Germany because the the, the ones that we started out with were bre- breaking or cracking all the time. Right. Uh, you know, uh, a a system. 
the system alone of shooting into uh, a, a, a one-way mirror that's set at a 45-degree angle to the axis of the lens that's and the incredible. projector. I mean, just start thinking about it. I, I know. You know, it's, it's, and we built that. I know. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible for anyone listening who hasn't seen uh, drawings, diagrams, photos of that. You should definitely uh, uh, enrich yourself by looking that up. Um, I know Piers Bazzani's uh, Toshin book from last year, 2001, The Making of 2001, has some really, really just wonderful, uh, lush illustrations and original repros, fold-out pages. Highly, highly recommended to, uh, uh, to to really get a grasp for what Dan's talking about. I mean, and, and yeah, and the fact that, uh, you know, Stanley would employ you to every great capacity you had to offer, whether it was, you know, helping design aliens, training the troop, you know, working with the 45-degree angle, you know, it's just incredible. I guess in a, in, a, in a way, I have to leap forward to a question, which is, you know, given that you worked on the film for a full year as, uh, you know, from, I guess, October 66, you said, until 67? Uh, yeah, That's- no, I I worked, I came on October 66, and I think I finished about January of 68, because after we finished shooting, I stuck around to help Stanley. He even asked me to try to come up with what type to use for the titles and things like that. Yeah, wow. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I just, it was hard to leave, and he kept giving me things to do, you know. So, I didn't want to leave, you know. Yeah, and then I, mean, I was uh, And I was looking forward to working on, on uh, Napoleon with him, uh, uh, which, of course, fell apart. I and then. Know. We and know. then I, you know, and then I got I got swept away by John and Yoko, and uh, well, other things happened. That. We're going to yeah. come to that. But I mean, in context, I bring it up because you know that is that is literally fifty years ago, Dan. And you know, you are having an amazing and, and if I may say so, you know, a blessed life. And uh, does it feel like it's been fifty years since you were there? Well, or, you know, or in, in a way is like, are you one of those people like, uh, you know, the past is always with us and you're just a, a well, no, I've, moved, I've lived so many lives since then. I, I got, you know, the thing is, this is that I'm uh, uh, I just I just go on each day is a new day and, uh, and I discover new things. And uh, since right I retired, I decided to be get uh, to be certified by the American Mountain Guide Association, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, I'm probably the oldest guy to do it. And <laughs> uh, uh, you know, and I go out and I teach rock climbing, and I'm interested in the the whole science of it, you know, and the and the techniques and the, the, you know, and I work, but I get to work with young people, you know, incredible. Which I teach classes, and the you know the they're all 22, 23. You know, and it's wonderful, and I'm 78. You know, I, do any of them know uh, about your uh, experiences, Moonwalker? Yes, yeah, they do. Some of them do. It's hard to it's hard to hide it. You know, it's uh, well, yeah. I can't and, imagine uh, you you wouldn't think it's a, a badge of honor, but there's probably a fine line between not wanting to be uh, pigeonholed. I guess I've know. always been very shy uh, about that. Uh, oh, interesting. That kind of stuff. Uh, well, I, you know, I grew up in in Connecticut, and we, mm-hmm. we don't brag, you know. Right. And uh, 
we pretend we 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 were always self-deprecating, you know. Right. Uh, I'm from know. North. I'm I'm from North Jersey. People here brag way too much, but I know. Well, I, <laughs> you know, I was, uh, you know, I I was brought up with a bunch of you know snobby, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, you know, pain in the ass people. But uh, mm-hmm. what are you going to do? That's the, that's what I was stuck with. I know Connecticut well, Dan, and uh, well, hopefully yeah. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't uh, uh, pick up a lot of the. Um, I want to know when. Uh, I know everybody would love to know when. Did you first see the finished film? And what, I mean, was it at the uh, the DC premiere, the Washington DC premiere? No, I did. I didn't come over. Uh, I, I was I was in, in England. I I I saw the. I think the the finished finished print I saw at the premiere in London. You know, in the the spring of '68, a few weeks after it opened in the states. And I, I Stanley had shown me stuff. You know, I'd been seeing things. You know, I, I remember going out there, and he and and uh, uh, Lovejoy were. Uh, they'd show me things on the moviola or in the screening room. So I saw, mm-hmm. I saw pieces and bits. I never saw the whole thing put together until the actual uh, uh, London opening. Did you and Stanley stay friends after production wrapped? And to you know, extent? I I didn't I didn't see very much of him. And you know, I mean, a lot of a lot of people who work with Stanley think they're they feel like they're almost his best friend. You know, mm-hmm. he has you know when right. you're working with him, he's like that. You know, and and then then there then suddenly he's not there anymore right. because he's now in a new project and he right. has a whole new bunch of best friends. Right. And it's, it's it was not a mean thing at all. There wasn't a mean bone in his body about that. Yeah, Mal- Malcolm that, Malcolm seemed to take a little uh, umbrage at that, but yeah, well, Mal- Malcolm is that kind of guy. He's a right, sweetheart, right. But you know, you know, right. and uh, uh, and I understood that, and I and it was funny. I went out and saw him during uh, when he was cutting um, Clockwork Orange, and uh, I had designed this editor uh, a flatbed three headed flatbed editorial table I had built by Prevost down in Milan for John and Yoko because we were we were trying to develop means of shooting rock and roll performances with multiple cameras which really hadn't been done to mm. date wow. and uh, and 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 putting a sync sending a sync tone to every camera and then having uh, uh, and then miking everything this is again very technical Miking everything separately and bring it back to a multi-track recorder, right, so that right. you'd have some cr- control over the sound because sound was notoriously bad of anything that was shot back in those days because of the noise and the PA systems were all over the place and yep, uh, yep. you know the crowds were screaming. So I had developed this table to be able to simultaneously see what three different cameras were doing all in sync with each other. And Stanley had heard about it through a fellow named Malcolm Kafitz, who had a company called Kafitz Cameras, who, who we all used to buy our still cameras from and, and lenses and things. Mm-hmm. And uh, Malcolm had told uh, Stanley, and so uh, I got I got this call from Malcolm and saying, "Well, Stanley, you know, you know, he, what, you know, he he doesn't know how to say this. He's a little shy, but he'd love to see you know, part of that <laughs> table." And 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 John Yoko. <laughs> We're, we're getting their heads shrunk by this, you know, Art Janoff, the primal scream guys. So they yep, were going yep, to yep. Gonna have to go Beverly Hills and, and get their brains, uh, you know, right. reduced or whatever. Right. And so I, I said to John, I said, you know, Stanley Kubrick would like to borrow your table. 
Mm. He said, oh, that's fucking incredible, man. Oh, oh that's fucking cool. Yeah, 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 tell him he could do it. So anyway, I had the table set over to Abbott's Mead, and he was cook. He was cutting everything in his garage. You see, right? Yep. And yep. and I got over there, and he had a steen back there, and he had an old moviola and a and a mm -hmm. single head steen back mm -hmm. there. And uh, so I came over and I got it set up, and and oh, Dan, hi. You know, it's like we, had, you know, it's like old friends hadn't seen each other. You know, and he said, "Come on, I've got so many things I want to show you." You know, and uh, and you know when and. He told me, he said, look, I figured it out. I do not need to have a studio anymore. I can do everything at home. Mm -hmm. I, could, I can make a movie with eight or nine, nine, nine people at the most. Right. And, 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 and I'm going to cut everything here, you know. Uh, I can cut it here. And what I do is we do all our planning here, get everything planned. I can send people out to work on getting the sets. And when everything's ready for me, then I'll get out of my car, I'll go over there, we'll shoot the thing where we have to shoot it, and then I come back home and they'll bring everything back here and I can cut it right. here and work on it here. It's like that. And and come on, and then, oh, I got to show you my office. You know, so we went to his office and we were talking about which shredder do you like best? And, you know, <laughs> you know, because he loves, we both were, you know, like I was really into security at that point because... You know, people were climbing in the windows to yeah. steal things and get looks at looks at John and Yoko, or to, any piece of paper that was yeah. around could get stolen and sold at Sotheby's. You yeah, know? right. And right. Uh, so we, so I spent a great day with him. You know, uh, it was you know, and but that was the last I saw of him. We never saw it again. And I, I it was a couple letters and things like that. But uh, he he was off in his world, and I was off in my world. Well, here we are again, the end of another show. A great interview there with Dan Richter, who we caught up with in Oklahoma on the 7th of September 2017. If you want to know more about Dan's involvement with Kubrick on 2001, then get a copy of his book, Moonwatcher's Memoir, which has a foreword by Arthur C. Clarke. Dan's website, by the way, is danrichter.com. That's D-A-N-R-I-C-H-T-E-R.com. This year is the 50th anniversary of 2001 and I'd like to bring to your attention a special live musical event, 2001 A Space Odyssey Live, presented by the South Bank Centre in association with the BFI and Warner Brothers Pictures. The event will be held at the Royal Festival Hall in London on Saturday the 28th of April 2018. There are also special screenings and events around the world to commemorate the anniversary of 2001, so keep your eyes peeled for those. Thanks again to our fabulous host, Jason Furlong, for his lines of inquiry, and also for our theme tune, which he composed and recorded all by himself. What a talented young man. Thanks also to author Filippo Ulivieri for helping us with research on this episode. By the way, Filippo has written a book called Stanley Kubrick and Me, 30 Years at His Side, which I would highly recommend. It really does give you an intimate look at Kubrick the man, a great book and in fact uh, we have spoken with Filippo recently and we'll be broadcasting that interview in an upcoming episode I'd like to invite you all to join our online community at the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society on Facebook where you can chat to other SCAS members of which we have around 14,000 at the moment 
Next episode, we will be speaking to Canadian-born actor Mr. Shane Rimmer, who was part of the B-52 bomber crew in Doctor Strangelove. A great guy who worked on that film over 50 years ago. We will now leave you to listen to Johann Strauss's The Blue Danube, performed by the Calendar Band, that's Calendar with a K, a fantastic three-piece band from Germany formed in 1973. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Kubrick's Universe and thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Rigg, tatty bye. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. <laughs>